Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Good to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, remember you can always find out more about this show and what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your audience-submitted questions. That process gets you involved in a subsystem we have called Mukana, which is our question and answer handler. Uh, if you come to the website, uh, officehours.global and track the little breadcrumbs that are there. It will eventually take you to signing up for Mukana. And if you do that, once you do that, you can figure out how to ask your questions and vote them up and down. If you vote up questions, we will get to them earlier and speak at more length about them. So that's generally how the process works. Our second hour is always devoted to a deeper dive into a topic. Today, our second hour is about video production. And basically, I wrote an article decades ago called uh, Five Things to Focus on to Improve Your Work. And that has formed the basis of a kind of a thing that I put out there. And I got a lot of feedback on it that it really helped people. So we're going we're gonna to kind of do a, a talk through of that. It's really taking the entire production of getting a good piece of content creation done and what you should concentrate on at each of the stages of that. So we will have a little discussion of that for our second hour. But right now we're in the first hour. And so uh, let's see, Courtney's reading today. So Courtney, what does our first question look like? All right. The uh, first question comes in from uh, uh, Matthias Jutlia in Helsinki, Finland, if that is your name. I scanned an individual rooms in a new house with an iPhone 14 LiDAR and Polycam. As a first-timer, how do I stitch these scans together? What software to use and how to create easily displayable 3D models that I can use when planning usage of the space? Jason Bass is going to start us off this morning. Jason. All right. Um... As a first-timer, it's not super easy to do. Uh, your best bet, one of Polycam's strengths, is that it will actually do the stitching until you hit stop. So your best bet is do the entire space because trying to put the rooms together, especially in Polycam, is is not directly easy. I, I, I would try to do <coughs> another pass and, and do it that way. So it will auto-assemble if you just don't stop between the things? So do you have to do I've, it all in I've one I've done an pass? entire warehouse, um, and you, you just have to keep letting it go. Ah, okay. So do you think stop and stop and start and stop, but basically just plan a route and then work your plan? Yeah, okay. Well, good. Hopefully that helps you, Matthias. Uh, we, uh, come back and let us know how it went. We'd love to find out. Let's go to the next question. Coming up from uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland, um, and Graham Cardwell asked, why might my 2017 MacBook Pro be taking two hours to render a 40-minute talking head video in Resolve 18.1 Studio? Uh, 2.9 gigahertz i7 with 16 gigabytes of RAM and a 4-gigabyte Radeon graphics card. This is much longer than it takes to render an 80-minute rugby match. Maybe it's just a fan of rugby and really wants to do No, I'm sorry. Courtney Gooden, give us a yeah, real answer. Maybe it's, uh, the only thing I can think of is that perhaps uh, that particular older version of Radeon, uh, the latest update of, uh, of uh, uh, Resolve, doesn't support, doesn't support the uh, hardware rendering, you know, the accelerated rendering of that graphics card. So check and see if that card is on the... Uh, supported list from uh, from Blackmagic because it may have evolved past and it may have dropped earlier, you know, support of earlier Radeon cards. I know that likes NVIDIA cards better. So, Jason, your thoughts? My immediate thought was this has something to do with a mezzanine um, 
codec. I think you're capturing something about the bitrate. Something is different because it really shouldn't make a difference um, unless, of course, you're doing a hundred teeny tiny little interstitial cuts and the way that you did them is somehow requiring Resolve to do something um, extraordinarily different. And as far as the the 2017 MacBook Pro, yes, I mean, they, they are targeting M1, which means it's going to slow down faster than you've ever seen an aging system slow down. Yeah, to me, the when I have a problem, this thing does it really fast. And then when I get to this project, it doesn't. I try to figure out what the differences are. And the first place that I generally look, there's a little tool called Media Info. You can take any video clip or audio clip, for that matter, and drop it on there. And it'll read out the codecs and the rest of the things it's encoded to. Um, and sometimes if I find out, oh, okay, these two things were shot at different times on different cameras. And there's something about the footage for the second one. Maybe it's a... Uh, an odd codec or has a different interframe or intraframe compression that the thing is having trouble with, that can be a problem. Also, famously, there are plenty of plugins once you drop them on things that extend the rendering time massively. Uh, I'm thinking of things like noise reduction plugins that really affect every single pixel. And if you use a tool like that, now, I'm not saying any of that is going on here. If you've shot this exactly the same and they're just two different types of content, but it's the same kind of thing happening, then you've got a whole different ball of wax. I'm, I would look for differences. If there aren't any differences, uh, I would say the, the other thing that stepped out to me is that you were saying that the rugby matches don't take the, the time. Um, rugby, it, it particularly shot at distance, there's a lot of green and without too much detail in there, without high definition, that's a lot of pixel duplication uh, in terms of there's a big green field down here. And for run length and coding and things like that, that can be very efficient. And we'll, we'll plow through that where, you know, the, the traditional trees leaves against a sunlit background that's constantly moving and changing every pixel can take forever for a compression system to work with. Jason, more thoughts? Um, yeah. In short, you know, go back to the basics. Sanitize your inputs. Um, if you can, I use something called Edit Ready that will simply, you know, get everything out to ProRes. If you've got the speed and the storage to do that, render every single input out to, to ProRes and then drop it back in and see what you get. Yeah, one consistent codex is a really good idea. Courtney, other thoughts? Yeah, I think Jason was on to something there. I think it depends on the original codecs that each were shot in. And a rugby match, which has a lot of movement uh, in every frame, uh, there you're going to end up with a lot of iframes. And uh, so maybe it takes less time to uh, render them out because every you've got the full information for every frame to render it out. Ah, it depends upon yeah. what the source the source uh, codec was and what your destination codec was. Some go straight across without very much... Uh, uh, re-encoding, and some of them have to be completely re-encoded and have to look backward and forward and to come up with each frame as it renders it. So the difference in the action in the frame can make a difference in long GOP uh, codecs, and it um, doesn't matter too much in a in a uh, ProRes codec. Uh, in intraframe compression, actually intraframe compression, that could make a difference too if it is intraframe compression in ProRes. Because if every pixel is moving from frame to frame, that can take up a lot more data. So uh, it can take it a lot longer than just sitting a talking head where the background's not changing at all and only the lips are moving. 
Yeah, that's the weird thing about your question, Graham, is that the talking head video against a static background is usually the easiest and quickest. And you're saying it's taking two hours to render that out. And the more complex scene, it's getting through faster. That says to me that there's something at work here a little beyond the the, the norm and the average. So good luck tracking it down. Uh, come back if you get a solution. Let us know what it was. Next question. This one comes in from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. He says, morning, guys. Is there a way to directly have ISO feeds from an ATEM record to a networked Synology without using the Blackmagic Cloud Pod hardware? Interesting. Jason, what are your thoughts? In theory, it's not impossible, but I've never seen it done. You would need a massive buffer. The real magic here is that it, there's enough... Um, there's enough throughput in this pipeline that is dedicated and all on the same page and all after the same thing, which is, you know, get the pixels from the cameras and sort them as fast as possible. And then no matter what's going on in the network, have enough buffer such that it can be sent down the pipe. So the short answer is no. And if you figure out how to do it, you, you got something there. Courtney, an added thought. Yeah, since the ISO is designed to, to output over USB 3 at a fairly high bandwidth, and you're outputting a whole lot of, you know, if you've got five, eight ISO feeds, that takes a lot of instantaneous bandwidth, and it may not squeeze down into your network. Uh, you know, if you've got a, you'd have to have a 10 gigabit network to connect to your Synology, and if you don't, you're not going to get enough bandwidth to shoot all those, all those feeds at the same time, because they have to go in real time. They can't back up and buffer, like Jason said. Okay, good tips. Thank you. And let's head off to our next question. This one comes in from uh, Richard uh, Bowman in uh, Defiance, Ohio. It said, should the bubble deck add-on for the stream deck be a mandatory install for production peoples? Ooh, you scared us. You've used the word mandatory, which <laughs> rises hackles everywhere. But, Courtney, what is your opinion here? Please know, if you haven't seen this app, what it does is it turns your Stream Deck buttons into bubble wrap. And so when you press each button, it goes... <laughs> and so uh, the only problem is after you've hit all the buttons, you you have to reinstall the program again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> So you it's know, adding like annoyance on top of annoyance. No, it's a it's a it's a, uh, a fidget spinner for your basically. That sounds that sounds like one of the ultimate. It's, thank you, Richard, for bringing it to my attention. I don't know why, but I'm probably going to be thinking about that for the next seventy two hours consistently, and uh, it'll ruin my life. But I appreciate it anyway. Let's go on to the next question. Coming in from our own uh, David Paskin here on the panel in Miami, Florida. He says, uh, Charles Berthold, an extremely talented musician on YouTube, posted a video the other day about having a cover he performed of an Eagles song taken down and receiving a copyright strike. Uh, what's your take on the state of strikes on YouTube? Well, we've been hearing about this, particularly involving the Eagles and a couple of other bands. They are particularly aggressive with their copyright defense. Uh, there are there are plenty of bands who say, you know, let people use the music, and you know, if they want to mess around with it, fine. The Eagles are not traditionally in that category, from everything I've heard. So. Um, 
you say, what is the, the state of strikes on YouTube? YouTube is responding to a certain degree to the copyright holders, their constituents that put their material on YouTube. And we have heard of artists more than just the Eagles, but the Eagles are commonly used as a, as a golden example of this, who are very aggressive in protecting their intellectual property. And if you use something from the Eagles in the background of music, you can kind of pretty much expect to get a strike uh, hit against you, at least some notification that they don't want you to do that. And I've even heard they're very aggressive when you're trying to use it under something like fair use, a uh, little snippet, they'll still come after you because they don't want their stuff being used by anybody in their other videos. Courtney, your thoughts about this? Yeah, the uh, copy bot, copyright bot on YouTube is getting better and better with the AI. And now if you're doing a cover of a song, as long, even if you're just reasonably close to the melody line of the song, you can get a strike uh, by the bot itself, whether or not the Eagles marked it as a takedown uh, or not. Uh, so I think, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, Beto, Rick Beto's site, who, who's a guitarist, and he likes to cover, you know, breakdown songs, how they did famous songs and so on, and he'll play a piece of it. He'll actually be playing it on the guitar. This isn't a recording or a clip or anything else. And he can only play, you know, five or ten seconds of it to avoid getting taken down by the by the YouTube bot. And that, that's, you know, of course, fair use under the instructional or educational application of the copyright law. But the bot will pull you down. I wonder if just the sound, it's such a classically unique sound of Don Felder playing that 12-string open on Hotel California or something like that. I'm wondering if they just have mapped that and they know exactly what it sounds like. And if you get anywhere close to it, they go, mm. That's no thank you. I, we know that waveform, and eh. so it, yeah, it's tough sometimes. And David, I wish there was an easier. Go ahead. Courtney. As we know, the the copyright uh, case that's going on with uh, Bruno Mars, I think, right now is it's just a similar four note phrase in one of his songs that was similar to another song, and he's being sued for copyright infringement. And I think they're kind of pushing the edge of copyright law there when they're saying that, you know, there's only there's only so so many notes in the musical scale, and, you know, every now and then you're going to put together notes in the same order. So uh, there's only four chords that make up all rock and roll songs. We yeah. know that. Isn't Ed Sheeran involved in one of the, that? Just over and over again, particularly yeah, at the yeah, top, there's so Ed much Sheeran, money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much money involved. Those those intellectual property pieces, a famous pop song that is well-beloved, uh, carries its own kind of emotional connections with it. And I do think sometimes uh, companies who want to promote products take take that under their under advisement and say, well, listen, if we play this song or something close to it, let's get Bob to create something that's close to it, uh, you'll get some of the emotional attachment and it'll it'll strike a chord with the audience where a regular random group of notes would not. Anyway, let's, we've been on this for a little bit. Oh, you yeah, have a last the, thought, Courtney? Once the lawyers smell money, you know, yeah. well, that's, it's, it's a business. Suing, you know. uh, let's go to the next question. Steve Yusef, uh, Scary, you're off. Oh, I can see now. You're off in Madison, Wisconsin says yesterday's make me smart podcast has a prominent background hum. What would you use to remove this sound? both during the record and in post. And he's a well, if you're lucky, it is a standard 60-cycle, here in the U.S., we're in 60-cycle electrical, and one of the most common sounds of a lifted ground or something like that is a 
60 cycle hum based on the power frequency. It probably would be 50 cycles in Europe and some of the other areas that use 50 cycle current. Um, so there are hum reducing devices that enable that. Those are actually pretty easy to take care of because they're very, they're way down at the low end of, uh, of the musical scale, for want of a better description. And so you can do a high-pass filter set just above that at 60 hertz or something like that. Or you can do a notch filter right at 50 or 60 cycles and get rid of that usually pretty effectively without too much damage to your actual main audio. Courtney, you had some thinking about it? Well, if it's in, if you can deal with it in post-production, if it's not a live uh, situation where you're hearing it live and you need to filter it out live, of course, uh, noise assist from sound devices and other noise receiver and even the Google, uh, I mean, even the uh, Zoom noise removal filter here works quite well. Uh, in most uh, uh, software, uh, you can use a, take a sample of a quiet space between the words and it, it can train the noise removal on that quiet space. You just uh, highlight something, you mark that as noise, and use the noise removal tool uh, inside your your uh, Pro Tools or uh, any of your almost any of your no, uh, sound editing programs can now do noise removal based on a sample of the noise itself. Hundred percent agree with that. The one place where you get into deep trouble is if you're in a cocktail party kind of circumstance or a sound a crowd. You're recording them, and you say, "Boy, I wish I could make all the other voices go away and just focus in on this particular voice." That is way more difficult because the combination of other voices are going to be at exactly the same frequency bands as the one you're trying to pick out of the crowd. Human beings can do this, interestingly enough, because our brains are sophisticated enough. We'll, we'll watch somebody, we'll read their lips, and kind of get some of the sound, and we can parse that. But you put a microphone where your ears are and record it without those additional cues, and suddenly it's really hard to hear what somebody's saying in a pure audio sense without the visual cues that go along. Just how yeah. kind of audio and Sound and vision work, and that noise time. removal, that noise removal uh, um, plugin or, or utility in most of the uh, sound editing software only works with consistent noise that that stays the same throughout. In other words, yeah. if if it's like Bill said, it's constantly changing or random, uh, it it can't really remove it very easily. So hopefully that helps, Steve. Let's move on to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, he says, has anyone ever considered using Zoom for a security system with its multiple windows and excellent sound and video persistence? Uh, if there isn't an app for this, maybe someone could develop one. John Preto, you have some thoughts on this. The, the answer is no. <laughs> I, I think it's a violation of their terms and service, actually. And on, even on the paid accounts, you've got 30 hours before it resets and you have to restart Zoom. And then the other accounts, you've got 20 minutes. It's not designed as a security system. Uh, and then each of the encoder sites, you'd have to have at least a minimum as a phone as the encoder. And so it just doesn't make sense as a security system. There you go. Courtney Gooden, additional? Yeah, also, you know, all good security systems have motion detection and uh, some type of uh, intelligence in detecting what's moving, whether it's a pet moving through and has a threshold that you can set or an area that you can set to detect people moving. So you wouldn't get the alarms or notices that you would get off of a you know $600 security system, which would probably do better for you than trying to use Zoom. 
plus all those offshore security systems, you can get a box with, what, 12 cameras and a base station, the rest of that, and it's like 300 bucks. And so it's kind of crazy. It's become such a commodity since there were so many of them manufactured and sold. Let's move on to the next question. This one comes in from Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Would a topped and tailed conference talk only render the first three seconds on Resolve 18 point, or why would the topped and tailed conference talk only render the first three seconds on a Resolve 18.1 studio? I have five other talks that have rendered in full. Courtney, can you suss this out? Well, usually when you run into a problem like this, it's whatever was used to top and tail that clip has possibly uh, munged up the uh, header numbers at the beginning of the file, which tell which tell the uh, software how long the file is, and if there's a mistake or a bytes dropped or uh, uh, some it gets glitched or, or misaligned in some fashion, uh, it can cause the the software to think the file is a lot shorter than it actually is, and a lot of times uh, you'll see that happen. Uh, in something that goes in and tops and tails something it, it didn't correctly write out the uh, write out the new length of the file after it took off the head and the tail of the file. Jason Bache. Yeah, this undoubtedly has to do with uh, a bit being flipped. So like MPEG, you'll hear us talk about this nebulous, you know, thing that is MPEG and how different it can be and, uh, you know, how elusive it is, even though things can be compliant but not compatible. Um, it, basically, it, it all comes down to this this piece called, a, um, I want to say it's H26 Forge. Um Essentially, the decoding of the MPEG is up to the... Um, the, the device that's trying to do that. It, it is not a standardized process. It's a standardized outcome, but it's not a standardized process. So, um, you know, where the interstitials and, and where the, um, you know, where the keyframes are is a simple way to think about it, um, really turns into this nebulous thing. But, you know, the, the, the programmatic um, standardization that you would get for most codecs just doesn't exist for MPEG. And I think that's what's going on. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You use the term bit flipped. And I remember talking to an engineer very early in my career. I was probably just maybe in the middle of my 20s. And uh, he was talking about the then brand new idea of computer encoding of things like sound and video and things like that. And he said, yeah, it is possible that a random cosmic ray could hit a gate and flip the state of that. And if it was just the wrong one at the wrong time, the whole thing could come falling down. And the reason I even bring it up at all, I'm not saying that happens. And you shouldn't use that as an excuse, but there is a certain randomness to the thing worked six times and now it doesn't work. And you're trying to figure out what it is that's causing it not to work the sixth time after it's worked five times. And at some point, I think it's really worth pursuing to try to figure out what's different about instance five compared to the four before it. But in some cases, I also find myself going, this may just be one of those circumstances where I'm better off going back and doing the whole thing again and seeing if this time all the encoding steps and all the math just works a little better and it writes the end of file properly and it knows where the beginning of the file is. Sometimes just redoing it is the best thing that I can come up with. And I've had success. Didn't work the first time, but it works the second time. I'm not sure why. Courtney, you had a thought? Yeah, if I were you, I would go back and take the original footage that hasn't been topped and tailed and try and render that out. And if that works fine, then top and tail the rendered footage version. Yeah. Jason, last thought? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was looking at my notes for this because I actually tried to wrap my head around this at one point. I'm going to read you two sentences. First, the decoder is set up by passing in an SPS and PPS with frame and compression-related properties. Then the decoder receives the first slice, parses the slice header into syntax elements. Then the decoder begins a macro-block-level reconstruction of that image. Then the entropy decodes the syntax elements and passes them to either a residue reconstruction path or through a frame prediction path. It continues like that. Yeah, so it works just like a tape recorder. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> That's the level. Uh, yeah, that all, it always scares me thinking about, uh, you know, I'm getting frustrated because my computer won't do this instantly. And I have no idea how much I'm asking it to do behind the scenes, as Jason just so eloquently described. Let's go on to the next question. Hope that helped a little bit, Graham. Coming in from David Paskin in Miami, Florida, he says, I just opened a Google Doc and was told that I now have access to lab a lab feature that integrates Google Bard right into Docs. Has anyone else seen or used this? Our resident AI guru, John Preto. So we've been talking about this, both Google Bard being integrated into all the Google applications and Microsoft doing the same thing in all the Office applications. Unfortunately, because all of my accounts are Google Workspace, they don't have this available for Google Workspace accounts because it's a violation of terms during the beta. And so they're capturing all this data that people are on the beta program. They're capturing all your data and they're analyzing it, which violates our terms and conditions as a paying member. And so I have to open up a free account, Google, to use these features in Bard, uh, which which that I'll do seems now. seems weird. It is totally <laughs> weird. So, so you're but, but helping you, them, giving them money, and they're going to turn you into the second-class citizen. That's correct. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so AI, as I've been saying all along, has been, is going to be integrated into – it's going to be ubiquitous. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be integrated into every app that we use on a daily basis. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the next question. You can't keep a good bard down. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas says, Canva Teams is a 30-day free trial, but then it's 119 bucks. He doesn't say whether that's a month or an outright cost. Is it worth it? I would get, it depends on your workflow and depends on what you have to do. I know there are people on Liberty, who is our host on Mondays typically, uh, is a big Canva supporter. It, she did a great presentation on it. And for the people who need its function specifically and build a workflow around that, I would think it would probably be um, very much worth it. Now, there are other people who, it you know, you already have 14 programs that do something similar and you use this just occasionally, then that's going to be one just based on your budgetary, you know, what, what's, what do you think you can, what do you have to pay for it and what do you think you could make off of it to support that outflow of cash? It's going to be a business decision as much as anything else. We do know that software tends to push us towards subscription uh, over the course of, the development of software. Um, I, there's a lot of debate on both sides of it. Uh, I just always keep my eyes on my subscription lists and try to keep it as low as possible because I have been in circumstances where I've subscribed to something and didn't realize it for six months and I've been paying for it for six months without using it. And that annoys me. But that's just me. I'm goofy that way. Let's go on to the next question. This one comes in from uh, Douglas Carmichael, and he says, uh, after backlash, Twitter kept free API access for public services like transit and disaster response agencies. Should the OS vendors create a notification platform that public services could connect to? What could replace Twitter for that use? Um, 
I don't do much with Twitter these days. In fact, I don't think I've opened it for quite a while. Uh, Courtney, what is what is your thinking? Yeah, I would think so because you know, like uh, uh, the radio services have have that whole network of emergency broadcast system uh, in emergencies. So they set up a network of certain radio stations that are clear channel stations or the primary or AM stations in the primary service area to broadcast a, a, an alert tone to the other stations to alert them to tune to that station and rebroadcast those emergency numbers. So I would think there is a network set up by some type of emergency broadcast system that wouldn't depend on something like Twitter to get the get the word out. The Twitter may be just an ancillary method of getting out a notice uh, right now. but um, And so that's why they incorporated the public services into that as an ancillary service for, for broadcasting and emergency services. But um, if you're going to set up another service, I think that other service is already set up. It's just you're, they're just considering Twitter an additional place of, of making the announcement. John Preto. Dr. Keenan and, and uh, one of our other producers that's in, this, in the emergency services business, uh, trust me, they have access to all the data they need. Okay, so they're well connected back in that that business. Um, by the way, I neglected sadly at twenty past the hour to make the announcement, but I'm going to make it now and uh, beg the gods' forgiveness. Uh, the, all it is is simply w- your questions drive the show. So we're always looking for you to participate by asking your questions. And please, once you've asked a question, everybody else who's in the system on the back end. Take the moment to vote up or down those questions as you see fit, and that determines the run of show and how things proceed. Uh, I think we're trying to look for the future where this show may go farther than it does now, and we're putting in the possibility that local people may have other announcements to make around the show. So I should have been there at 20 minutes past the hour, but I'm not there at half hour. Let's continue to the next question. All right, coming in from uh, Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Robin says, after yesterday's excellent second hour, I started looking at implementing 5.1 audio in my office. Is anyone here using 5.1 outside of a home theater? If so, how? I am not, but I have to admit I'm right there with you, Robin, in terms of the fact that our dear friend Jeff Francis did an excellent breakdown of uh, all the new capabilities in multi-channel audio and in in, uh, ambient audio and spatial audio and just really opened my eyes to this whole new world of multi-channel, multi-track spatially aware audio. I just thought it was a fascinating hour. So if you hadn't been here yesterday, or if you're interested at all in any of this ambient audio ideas, uh, go back and rewatch yesterday's show. It really was. It, it, it was. I just found it fascinating, the whole thing. Courtney, you had some thoughts? I'd use it outside the home in my car, but I wouldn't use it, uh, I don't know about an office, because, uh, you know, depending upon your speaker placement, you don't want, you know, somebody sitting right next to the right speaker, you know. Uh, t- to interpret 5.1 correctly, there's a certain sweet spot area where you need to sit to appreciate it. So uh, I would put it in an office that has more than one person in it. Uh, if you're the only person in the office, sure, go ahead, put it in. Uh, you know, if you're going to stick the subwoofer under Johnny's desk because, you know, Johnny, we don't like Johnny. So he's going to hear all the bass you know, coming out from under his desk. You know, it depends on how the speakers are arranged. And uh, and 
how you treat it and whether the people really need to hear something in 5.1 in your office or is it just background music or announcements? Depends on what you do in your office, I suppose. I never contemplated the idea of 5.1 as punishment before, Courtney. I'm not sure whether I should thank you or darn you for putting that concept in my head. Malicious uh, surround sound. I love it. Is bouncing across his desk as we have the. What do you mean? I got to sit under the tweeter. (laughs) It's always Johnny or Little Johnny. My entire life. (laughs) Well, anyway, it's an interesting question. Thank you for putting it in, Robin. And let's go to the next one. Tlalic Lopez Waterman from Salisbury, Maryland says, It's time to repair or replace my ATEM Mini Pro power cable. Where are folks getting the ones with switches? Ooh, uh, Jason, start us off. We'll go to John Preto after that. Yeah, Jason. the one with switches. Um, I got it from an eBay seller, maple.leaf.fan, and uh, I can give you a link. Oh, there you go. Someone who's a cocky fan, uh, obviously. John Preto? I bought the same one Tom Ferguson uh, referred to us, and I put it in the chat room, linked directly on Amazon. Oh, there you go. And uh, Courtney, final thoughts? Being talented with a soldering iron and having a uh, <laughs> a shop full of mini toggle switches, I built my own, and I added in a little strip of, because uh, my ATEM is mounted above my mixer, a little strip of LED lights that are powered off at of 12 volts that come on when you flip the switch on as well. It powers up the ATEM and the lights as well. So it's, it's, I always know it's on or coming on, and it uh, makes it easier to turn it off if you're handy Does your soldering. soldering station have a fan? I just needed to know. Yes, it does have a fan. It there has you a go. Vapor, I knew you were going to be a proponent of safe soldering. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. Let's move on to the next question. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, do you have to get a Part 107 license to fly a drone if you're flying your drone to produce a free personal videos? Jason Bache. Okay, I'll try to keep this brief. Let me start by giving you a a podcast that is the brainchild of a a good friend of mine. Take a look at Ask Drone You. I'm going to flip your question and basically say, I don't know why you wouldn't get a Part 107 if you're taking this seriously, because it'll allow you to fly at night in controlled airspace um, over, in some cases, people and vehicles to fly above LAANC um, grid numbers with authorization, to go over 400 feet AGL, uh, to fly from a moving vehicle, to request direct waivers from the FAA. Um it's not a hard thing to do, and it's worth your time if if you want to do this at all seriously, regardless of whether or not you're going to sell it. Yeah, I'm going to support that just because I had that circumstance. I think I mentioned it briefly on the air back when it happened, but I had a gig recently. I was shooting a thing for the big end-of-year Girl Scout cookie sales. They have a thing where they send massive amounts of boxes with the Navy uh, across the world for people who can donate Girl Scout cookies to the active duty servicemen. Great program. And we thought, oh, it'd be great to get a drone shot of flying around the midway during the midst of it when the deck was covered with all these moms and girls and other people generally celebrating this end of the big campaign. Um, And as I investigated whether we could do it, the answer was no, unless you're at the serious end of the thing where you have those waivers, because it would take at least three months to get a waiver that was a 
I just need to do this this one time. And the people who have those waivers can go and do those kind of things. They're kind of hooked into the system and can submit it and get things done much quicker than a regular civilian uh, like myself can, and you know, I had a client, and it was an. I was working for the people who were working directly with the Girl Scouts and all the rest of that, and uh, but I couldn't get it done. Just couldn't get it done in time. So, Jason, one more thought. Yeah, um, I mean, there are a lot of of rules here. Um, I was trying to be succinct. Um, the last part that's worth mentioning is that um, you you have to register if your drone weighs more than two hundred and fifty grams, which is almost all of them. Yeah. You get those little tiny mini things, but yeah. So I, I think if you're serious about doing this, if you're if you're using your drone to make money on a consistent basis, I would think that this would be just one of those things where uh, you know, you're flying up there with a lot of air traffic control circumstances. I know every time I seem to have a client who wants to use a drone shot, they tend to be in a flight path of something else, and we end up not being able to do it. So uh, just good suggestions. Next question. From John Snyder in uh, Reno, Nevada. He says, I have a Flow 8, a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera, an ATEM Mini Extreme, a Cleanbox Pro. I need to get the audio signal embedded in the USB out of the ATEM since work won't let me install the Flow 8 software. What is the best way? XLR out of the Flow into the camera? Chris Fenwick, help us out. John, send us a message. I don't know what a clean box pro is. That sounds interesting. Here's here's what I'd like to say about this topic. Uh, number one, I think that if you lobby the right people, push the right direction, you might be able to get an exemption to install the software. It's silly that they won't let you. Um, <clears throat> I also think it's hugely detrimental. Just I, I know that in some of the instances of the companies that we work with, they're what I would consider draconian security measures make their companies very much less effective. And um, sorry, it looks like my, num my numbers are a little high. Um, and th they're so, st it, it slows down workflow because they don't let them use certain utilities or whatnot. And I kind of understand it, but. Um, Push back a little. You might be able to get, if you find the right person and ask the right people, you might be able to get um, uh, a waiver or whatever. Courtney? Well, a couple of thoughts. Maybe it doesn't need the software from the Flow 8 if you're not going to use the computer to control the Flow 8 itself. I think, like the Roadcaster Pro, doesn't require Road Central to run. If you plug its USB in, as I'm using now, it shows up just as a regular two channel audio device coming in over USB, and you don't need any external software to be installed at all. Uh, so if you can try that without, uh, try it without installing the software, the Flow 8 in. Um, if, uh, if you're going to use the audio inputs in the Blackmagic Cinema Camera, that and the ATEM are probably equally bad preamps in there, so it probably doesn't make much of a difference. I don't think, I don't, I can't remember, maybe any of you out there that have the Pocket Cinema Camera know if it's a balanced input or not. If it is, then I'd do what you suggested and, and take the XLR out of the Flow 8 and plug it into the one of the inputs on the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera and bring it in over the HDMI into the ATEM to marry it to your ATEM signal going out over USB. Uh, yeah, otherwise, you're going to have to convert it to unbalanced and uh, feed it in over the mini plug. Yeah, it actually does. I have a Blackmagic Cinema Camera 6K, and it has a one mono 
XLR to, what is it, four pin? I can't remember the connector type. It's an unusual little connector. TA3, uh, perhaps. Yeah, TA3, TA3, TA, yeah, TA3 maybe. Uh, so it has one balanced in. And so you can do that if you want to go ahead and route around and put your audio directly onto the video signal and mux it at the camera thing. That's uh, quite possible. All right. Hopefully that was helpful. Let's dive into the next question. Coming in from Douglas Carmichael, he says, An enthusiast has created a half-scale model of the legendary Grateful Dead Wall of Sound. Was the Wall of Sound an early example of immersive audio? Is there a practical application for the concept today? I don't know why, but this makes me laugh hysterically. I, you know, the Grateful Dead was just one of the more interesting bands in the history of bands, and I'm not sure there was a lot of engineering, but maybe there was a ton of engineering. Jason, help us out here. Did you ever explore the Dead's Roadshow? Um, yes and no. I'm a little bit young for that, and um, but no, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be gentle here and say it depends, and here's why. It depends because if you were defining immersive sound as different sounds coming from different places, by definition, a wall of sound, no matter how cleverly EQ'd, is not immersive. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just think the more drivers, it, it always seemed to me, the more drivers you had, the more individual drivers, even match drivers, match drivers in, in line arrays and things like that, they work beautifully and they're fabulous. But back in the day when this was happening, I think it was probably like, how many speakers can we get together and wire them all up and give them enough power to make one big, uh, gigantic kind of radiating driver? And I would imagine that the intermodulation stuff would be a nightmare. That's me. I'm not an engineer. I just play one on this show foolishly occasionally. Chris Fenwick, thoughts? Not a deadhead uh, per se. I know people that were very much so. I believe that the wall of sound, besides being over 600 speakers, um, I believe part of what made the wall of sound um, unique was that they separated different instruments into clusters of speakers. So, Jason, it wasn't uh, all necessarily mixed together. Like, guitars came from this PA and drums came from this PA. I could be wrong. I'm uh, desperately checking the... the uh, book of knowledge right now for it. Uh, but I know it was over 600 speakers, and I think they had separate amplification channels for in different instruments. I wonder what the power draw on that sucker was. Uh, Jason Bache. Um They did, and there was a lot of clever EQing. Um, friend of the show and uh, guy who made the mics a lot of us are talking into, Bob Heil has been attributed to a, a lot of this kind of cleverness. He kind of figured out how to do some interesting stuff with cabling and and with um you know with with passive with passive inversion as noise canceling holy yeah, 20, jokes 26400 watts of power yeah that's not immersive those are the drugs all right that's <laughs> deafening <laughs> Somebody just, uh, for those of you who are listening at home, I think Chris just put up a link to Wikipedia, 26,400 watts. So, yeah, this is like run the big copper uh, uh, Golden Gate Bridge size cables <laughs> into the biggest power tap you've got and maybe we'll survive all these amplifiers. Courtney Gooden, your thoughts? All right, I had to unmute. It, yeah, it was unique. The What was different about this is rather than uh, you know, line arrays or things that are in front of the stage. 
they set their wall of speakers up here, as you can see them, behind the band, which means to keep the uh, PA out of the uh, out of their vocal mics must have been a pretty difficult trick. And the other thing that was different about their their wall of sound is they controlled the levels of the PA, apparently, rather than a front-of-house mixer, so it gave them complete control over it. And so, you know, you're never going to have the lead guitarist going... More monitor, more monitor. When he's got fifty thousand, yeah, even need behind him, uh, You know, blowing him out into the audience. The entire it, stage back backstage area is a monitor. Th- there's a another monitor. stat on the on the uh, book of knowledge here that said that the the sound would project up to a quarter mile. At which point, I think I'm out of sync. At which point, uh, the wind would uh, just atmospheric problems would start to affect the quality of it, but. Also, yeah. the drugs. I mean, let's let's just say you know that. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, God bless the Grateful Dead. They were certainly ahead of their time in a lot of areas. <laughs> you know what? It is what it is, folks. The kids do not try this at home. Do not take every speaker from all of your friends in the neighborhood and wire them all together unless you at least take a basic radio electronics course and talk about impedance and stuff like that. Maybe it, that's it what killed Jerry Garcia at an early age. Uh, Not could be. Drugs. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the next question. Paul Wallace uh, from Austin, Texas says, what is Apple's metaverse strategy and how is their social media initiative coming along? Uh, John Prado, you want to help us out here? Stay tuned for WWDC next month. We're only weeks away from hearing what their metaverse strategy is going to look like. They certainly won't call it a metaverse, that's for sure. Uh, call it the <laughs> yeah. Appleverse. There, now, you won't see anything related to Meta anywhere on Apple. And what social Gee, media strategy? They tried that. It was called Ping. It lasted how long, Jason? Uh, two uh, weeks? About, about <laughs> five minutes. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, we always watch what Apple does. And I would imagine that we're going to be doing one of our uh, real-time here on the show. We'll probably uh, tune in to the Worldwide Developers Conference and see what they are talking about. For those of you who have not experienced one and don't know about it, that's the Apple's Developer Conference, and they have hundreds of sessions, and it is their chance for their engineers and the people behind the scenes, product managers and things like that, to tell their um, dealer network and everybody else, all the technicians who work on Apple stuff all around the world, uh, exactly what's going on, what their roadmap is, what their plans are, how things actually work down to the level of the code that runs it. So... um, since I was so late on my first announcement, I'm going to be equally late on the second announcement and say, I think we have enough questions here. Let me just double check in the other category to see how many of these are general and how many. Yeah, it looks like we have enough general questions to get through things. If you want to ask questions about the uh, areas of video production that we'll be talking about in the second hour today, you can put those in anytime you want. And we will have a general discussion with the panel here about video production related topics in our second hour. Let's go on to the next question. From uh, uh, Kurt Sig in Defiance, Ohio, he says, AI software used for video storage and search. Maybe just you guys use in general that works and is affordable. Chris Fenwick, what are your thoughts? Um, Here's what I can tell you. Very interesting. Box, the uh, online storage folks, people, they literally just announced uh, two days ago, yesterday, two days ago, uh, they are now at, they have Box AI. Um, so, you know, just like, just like some of the other things we know, now with AI. Um, 
and they're going to use it to help um, organize and sort and and uh, you know get through all the data that you have in your box system. Uh, it's very interesting. They made a lot of announcements, including very high speed box. Uh, I think I don't know if it's a tier that you pay for, where you get faster um, uploading and downloading. Um, but it was very interesting, I, and I know th- this is all public knowledge. Uh, but I was working on a, a project for them this last week. But they just made the announcement on CNBC about Box AI. Cool. That sounds like something worth in, uh, looking at, Courtney. I use Google Photos because it's mostly free. Uh, you may need to expand your Google storage if you use up more than the free amount that it gives you for storage. But it's pretty good. The AI in it can you can you know type in a request uh, you know all pictures of me with a blue shirt on and it'll find that or all pictures of uh, people with dogs are all you know you can you can have the AI search for general categories or types of pictures or locations. It recognizes locations. It reads signs. Uh, and it uh, it propagates, you know, it stores your pictures in the cloud. I have an Android phone, so any picture that I take on my Android phone, it automatically uploads and is available to any devices that I log into using Google Photos uh, almost immediately after. So I use that for organizing all of my photos, and I think it handles videos as well. I like that word, organizing. I'm going to try to use that in sentences for the next week or so. Um, yeah, you know, this is getting, this is all about metadata. And, and, um, my friend Phil Hodgetts talked to me many years ago about metadata and he kind of broke it into some categories. One of the things was generated metadata and there's user uh, applied metadata and there's four or five categories that he had identified. And to me, what I like in a system, anything that I'm going to work with is that it has both generated AI, uh, generated metadata that it's going to tell me there are two people in this photo. This photo has six people in it, stuff like that. That can be very useful. The other thing is to allow me to imply my metadata onto that. That is cousin Tim. And it, the AI would never know that is cousin Tim unless I had identified that before and they linked that to the face. So that to me is the big advantage of, um, What's happening with AI and metadata is it's getting smarter about applying what I would have applied to it. But I also always want that ability to go in and touch the meta- metadata and make it more specific to what I'm looking for. Let's go to the next question. From good old LA, where I'm sitting right now, Rajan Shandil says, What is your soft pitch to invite others to office hours? Ooh, John Petto, start us off. I've been posting little mini ads on Facebook for for two and a half years now. Yesterday, for example, I did Jeff. I did uh, Jeff Francis. This is a picture of Jeff Francis, one of those ambisonic microphones, and then a link to to Office Hour. So my soft pitch is all done on Facebook. I have five thousand friends there. So, oh, cool. Uh, yeah, uh, I just think you know people who don't know about us. Uh, you know, it's it's really an amazing thing we do here is gather people together to solve problems and to let li- people listen into it because maybe the problem that you have is a problem that a thousand other people have. And if they get to it here or if they get to it via search in the archives of the shows that we have, uh, we can help people in the real world at no cost. And boy, it seems to me, I know I've learned so much just sitting on panels here for the most of the show's life that I really appreciate all of you who participate here every single day, questioners, panelists, back-end crew, unbelievable amounts of knowledge and wisdom that they've just left here free for the taking. Let's go to the next question. 
Coming in from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, uh, AST Space Mobile, a Texas-based satellite manufacturer, has successfully demonstrated a call between two smartphones via satellite. How do you think this technology will change the world and how we work? Courtney? Well, we've had sat phones available for a couple of decades now. Uh, they're a different class of phone, and it uses the uh, Iridium satellite network, and there's others as well. Uh, so I don't think it's going to change very much how we work. The question is, will this AST Space Mobile satellite system work with just any off-the-shelf cellular phone? And uh, how will it deal with interfacing with the current cell network? I know SpaceX has announced uh, a method of uh, listening to iPhones and other off-the-shelf phones right now, but it's only for uh, low bandwidth messages, text messages for emergency notifications to to send an emergency notification to a satellite. If you're not near a cell site, uh, it would become very handy. So the uses for that, the uses for that in rural areas would be, you know, quite quite great, and and that's what uh, SpaceX is you know doing with their um, their satellite network right now. So there's going to be competing satellite networks, and pretty soon you'll look up and you won't be able to see blue sky because of all the Satellites hovering in low Earth orbit. Let's get to the next question. From uh, Paul Wallace in Austin says, "What's your Amazon? What's on your Amazon wish list?" I don't know if I have anything in my queue right now. Occasionally, you know, I, the way I use it is I just wander through my life until I find something that I don't have that would fix a problem. <laughs> then I put it in my Amazon queue, and if I'm if it's an immediate problem, I buy it now, and if not, I buy it later. I'm astonishing that they can send me a three dollars something the next day without charging me for it. But I I don't understand their economics at all. Courtney, your thoughts? I wish they'd give me a free Amazon gift card that is bottomless. That, that would be great for me. Uh, I have uh, pre-ordered, I don't know, from Amazon or Creality, the Creality K1, which I'm keeping my fingers crossed, will be coming in uh, at the end of the month, a new 3D printer that's very, very fast. Chris Fenwick. I still think I, my picture's delayed, and I don't know why. Uh, I want... A black magic four ME constellation HD. I don't want the four K. Forget that. I just want I want that and I want the two ME panel and I have zero need for it. But I really, <laughs> really, I really want one. It'll be You want it as an it'll be, right, it'll be right over here over my shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. Just a beautiful piece of high tech equipment that isn't connected to anything but looks beautiful. Hmm. Let's go to the next question. Coming in from Funsak um, Durji in Dharamsala, India, and he says, which compression does ATEM Minis use? Uh, which one would the panel prefer, H.264 or HEVC, and why? Jason Bache, help us decode compression. Okay, um, it's exactly the same as um, as the Hyperdex. So I believe it can it can do everything, but um, but completely uncompressed, uh, all the way up to the highest bit rate that um, that a standard Hyperdex will permit. It is a variant of H.264. It is not HEVC, which is H.265 or the high efficiency video codec. There you go. Next question from uh, Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. 
Gordon says the Blackmagic Duo monitors with scopes cost about $350 more than those without. In most cases, are video scopes that important? Jason Beige. Yes, they're right over there and they're worth every penny. Yeah, I'm going to support that. See, here's the thing. Monitors can all be different. Your eyes can fool you too. Your eyes change over the course of the day. The advantage of scopes is it is an absolutely uncolored look at what does this waveform look like? What is the level of this video? Where are the colors balanced against each other? And that kind of information, not something that's your opinion, but something that is an observable fact, always means you can get to a starting place that should be reproducible across the entire system. And that's what makes for good-looking programs generally. Uh, you can devi deviate from perfect, but you want to know where perfect is all the time. Courtney? Yeah, besides the scopes that maybe do RG, RGB parade, uh, you know, just having a monitor that can do uh, zebras or false color to give you a handle on your exposure so that you don't have to meter everything. You can just look at that, uh, turn on the, the zebras to tell you what's over and and turn on false color to, to see, you know, where there's a deficiency in light on your green screen background, et cetera. It's very handy to have. Yeah, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, let's go ahead to the next question. Uh, from uh, Colin Mulcahy in Dublin, Ireland. He says, uh, for Zoom ISO, with the lack of availability of Dante cards for the Allen and Heath SQ5, what other route is there to extract and control audio properly and feed it back into a live feed? Uh, Alan Heath SQ5. I've never used one. Um, audio properly. Boy, uh, this is beyond my area of expertise. I do not use Zoom ISOs. I don't have one. So I'm afraid you're going to stump me and it appears everybody else on the, on the thing. And, and that's fine. We, we try to get as close to 100% as we can, but we don't always achieve it. Colin, the strategy now is that if you can't get the answer today, if there's a chance you don't need this information in right away, come back on another day with a different panel and see uh, Zoom ISO is kind of in our tech thing. So maybe a Friday, even tomorrow might be a good chance to find a different arrangement of panelists and get the answer. Let's go to the next one. I was going to say you might want to contact Mickey Makachur on uh, Discord and he'll oh, yeah. be able to, be since he's handling a lot of those, the audio on the back end of our program here, he may be able to give an answer to you. Uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas says, what is the most adjustable and easy to roll TV stand for 55 to 65 TV or larger? There's lots of different catalogs that have this. I used to rely a lot on the MarkerTech catalog. MarkerTech has a lot of stands in the back and everything from the relatively smaller kind of, they're not prosumer, but they're the lower end, all the way up to the big monsters. Uh, there are a lot of those kinds of stands used in education, particularly in classrooms that have to be OSHA approved and you know can take a big heavy monitor and will not fall over on the students. So there's a lot of options out there. Jason, you had a quick thought? Yeah, um, if, if you find me on Discord, I, I bought a, a pair of these that I didn't have time to like walk around the camera and, and, and put into frame to show you. Um, you can get them cheaper, and um, it's a bad idea to get them cheaper. So we've got a couple more questions here, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, have them sent back to you. Hold on to them. Bring them back tomorrow or another day. We are approaching the top of the hour here, and that means we're going to do our transition to our second hour topic. I just wanted to note that we've got things happening every day on office hours and on after hours. And there are meetings in our after hour system on topics, I think, uh, L. 
today after the end of this program, Elle is doing, um, oh, what is it, uh, Isadora training and things like that. If you want to know about these things, uh, check out the website, um, officehours.global, and you will find links there to everything that's happening after hours and lots of different things that we discuss kind of in the back-end community of the show when we're not doing the show specifically. All that said, today we are going to be talking about video. Video is our Tuesday, our Thursday subject every week. Um, we do business stuff on Monday. Tuesday we do... Um, 3D graphics and just graphics in general. Wednesday is our audio day, Thursday video, and tomorrow is kind of uh, IT-related stuff. All that said, today for the video thing, I'm going to be talking about an article, really, that I wrote probably 15 years ago. And somebody has talking to me about how do we break down video production and make sense out of it? Because it can be kind of complex. Most of us got into it by saying, I really like shooting. And you maybe take a camera out and you start learning how to do it. But eventually, if you want to support your habits, you're going to have to start making money out of it. And I was charged with writing an article about how to break down the areas of video production so that you can start building your knowledge in all of the separate areas that are required to get a good program done. I'm not saying this is definitive. I'm saying that to me, this made sense. And I got a lot of feedback from the article that it made sense to a lot of people too. And I'm going to start off with a little graphic here. Uh, these are the five areas that I think are really useful for focusing on. And you will notice something, and that is the first one, pre-production, which is it's hu a huge topic on its own. And the last one, post-production, is a huge topic on its own. So are the three in the middle, but the three in the middle kind of have their own grouping. Those are the technical things we do in the field when we're going out to capture the content. You have to pay attention to audio, lighting, and camera. But if those are the only things you focus on and you don't focus on that first circle and the last one, you end up being incredibly inefficient. And in fact, those of us who make videos in the early days when we go out, the first training process we go through is to realize how badly we did something in prep or how badly we are prepared for post. And so we start changing the way we shoot so that we are better prepared when we start and that we have what we need when we get to the final edit stage. And so that's why I wrote that article. And I think that's why it resonated so much. Inside of each of those, and I'm not going to go through all of these, but, it, you know, because I don't want to do a lot of bullets and things like that. But this is my, my just in part one, look at all these different areas that you probably have to pay some attention to in order to do a really good job. And this is not an exhaustive list. In fact, this is far from it. These are just some of the kinds of things that I have to ha think about every time I go out to make a video. And there's the same kind of thing for all the others. And I'm just going to pop through really quickly. We're not going to talk about it. But, you know, there's all sorts of things in sound. There's all sorts of things in the lighting area that you have to pay attention to. And there's all sorts of things in the post, uh, in in camera movement, I mean, that's its own thing. And in fact, in post-production, there's even more in my way of thinking than there are in the other areas. If you're interested in those, you can go back and look on the tape and things like that and kind of think about them on your own. But again, not an exhaustive list, but those, all of those areas, 
every time I make a video, I have to keep each of those and more in mind if I really want my work to be of the highest quality because they all are important. Sometimes you go on location and you find out, okay, we're not rolling audio today. We're just picking up B-roll and it's going to be MOS, which is an old term for without sound. And so I don't have to deal with all the audio sides of things. But there's going to be another circumstance where audio is so mission critical that if you make a fatal error in audio, it brings down your entire production and you literally have nothing to work with from that point on. And that is not a good position to be in. Um, now I'm just going to open up. Anybody else on the panel have any thoughts about, about video production things, particularly things that have caught you? In the past that you went out to make a video and you suddenly said to yourself, you know something, I didn't prepare for this properly. And when I got on location or when I started to make it, it turned out to be a fatal flaw in the process. And boy, I'm never going to forget that one again. Courtney, we'll start off with you. Well, a lot of people don't really consider lighting uh, when they're going out to do smaller, smaller video productions. They're just going to be, re, you know. Uh, depend on available light. Uh, take some reflectors with you or some big white uh, pop-up uh, uh, filters or panels, a scrim that can be used to filter the sunlight and make it softer overhead if you're shooting in direct soft light, uh, sunlight. And a stand that can hold it. Make sure you have sandbags for those stands because the wind comes up, you don't want it conking somebody on the head. Uh, those big white uh, soft, soft filters, scrims, can be used also as reflectors to reflect a a white area to fill in underneath the harsh shadows caused by direct sunlight. Uh, so take that into consideration. So just take some grip equipment along. You'd be surprised. I've worked on network live shows for the major networks where they don't even have a grip department. And I'd go to them, you know, having worked on a lot of films, I'd go, you know, can I get a sandbag and a stand for that? Well, we don't have sandbags or stands. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Television <laughs> networks just don't get it a lot of times. Uh, especially live news shows, they don't they don't understand what that stuff is. Uh, you know, rain. Uh, you have a pop up to cover the camera in case of rain. No, here here take an umbrella. You know, that's what they have. So you have to yeah. plan for if you're shooting in the outdoor in the real world. Plan for inclement weather and uh, and take along some of your own lighting equipment. I'd suggest. Absolutely concur with everything you've said. You know, that that's another one of those things. You get out there and you bring your footage back and you go, oh, this doesn't look the way I want. Instead of an evenly exposed person, they've got these really dark shadows and they, they look a little bit like raccoons and they've got really harsh shadows across their face. And you're going, why did, boy, that doesn't look good. And then you realize, oh, yeah, it was 20 minutes after 12 noon, the sun was just slightly behind them. Part of them was really well lit, but but features and things that help you understand what they're saying and their expressions, just because of the way the sun was hitting them, look terrible. And that's when you start getting into what Courtney's talking about. Let me find diffusion. Let me find a, a way to cut the harsh sun hitting them. And then let me reflect light back into their face so that the people who are trying to see what they're saying get all the visual cues of, you know, not just what are the words they're saying, but what is their emotion? What is, you know, how are they presenting this material to you? All of that helps in the communication of the video. And that's why all that equipment, you, you start developing whole trucks full of equipment to handle every potential problem in that kind of outdoor shooting situation. Jason, you had some thoughts. Hmm. Oh, sandbags. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go, I'll go down that line. 
It doesn't matter how stable it is in your house, okay? It doesn't matter how stable it is in your house. doesn't matter how stable it is in your office. Never forget that wind happens, and we live primarily indoors, and um, as the result, we, we tend to forget that, you know, a clothespin might not be good enough to put gel on um, something that's way high up and, um, and can just smack down. And more importantly, um, it doesn't really matter whose fault it is, because ultimately it is yours. Production is by default a thing where you are ultimately responsible, not for the how, the, how people feel, although that's a great thing, but the finished product in its entirety. Um, it's like, um, it's as if you were commissioning a picture of, um, of your client and it had to be accurate, but also way better than any picture they've ever seen of themselves. Think of it that way. Um, I had along those lines, I will never let a client use a teleprompter unless they are willing to do a sample read and absolutely swear to me that, um, that their playback is good enough. Um, because if not, it really does take practice. And um, some people pick it up quickly and some people simply can't. So yeah, those are my thoughts. 100% agree with that. I've had the same circumstance. And since we are blessed with uh, the inventor, <laughs> essentially, of teleprompting, it's it's one of those things, you know, and I, we'll get to Courtney in just a second, but I have to tell you, I've had the same experience Jason has. Some people stand in front of them and they feel as natural as if they're talking to their next door neighbor. Other people stand in front of a teleprompter and it turns them into a wooden robot and they do not sound natural. And and since Courtney literally developed this for Hollywood, Courtney, what are your what are your thoughts on teleprompter? Well, you'd be really surprised you'd be really surprised at the number of actual professional presenters out there that uh, have dyslexia or never learned to read very well. I run into people that are sportscasters and so on, you know, who usually speak, speak extemporaneously. You know, they're doing color color calling on a on a football uh, game or something. But you know, you give them a prepared promo to read, and they'll go, "Well, just tell me what you want me to say." Well, it's right there in the teleprompter in the script. Just read it. Uh, well, just tell me what you want me to say, <laughs> and then you realize they have trouble reading. Uh, and you'd be surprised there are a number of people that, that just never learn to read out loud very well. Uh, so there's that problem. Um, I'm, go I'm ahead. sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, and that's one, you know, that, that's kind of why I developed that, that five steps thing, because I wanted people to understand that right now we're talking about teleprompting. So that touches on pre-production, getting the equipment, getting it out on set and having that available if, you're, if your talent needs that. It also has to do with the actual day of game. I mean, lighting can affect the teleprompter. Sound, certainly, if you've got a poorly constructed teleprompter system and it's making some noise or there's something going on. Um, the the video part, it, can you get the teleprompter rig if it's a direct-to-the-camera teleprompter like I'm using right now? I don't have anything on it, but uh, you know, if I look at where the teleprompter could be sent, where text could be sent... I'm looking down the barrel of the camera, and that might make the rig heavier. And so I, it's going to change my shooting style because I can't really go handheld. There are now teleprompters that you can use with handheld things, but the traditional studio types were a little too heavy for that. So you start to see the interconnectedness of all the technologies. You're making a decision in one area that that it impacts what you can or can't do in other areas. And everything that we're talking about here is interconnected in that sort of way. 
which is why for me it was always if you skip any of those things on the pre on your not the pre-production list but on your pre-production list and i wanted to emphasize that because this it should be designed for the kind of shoots you do if you have just we want to go out and just run and gun and pick up some stuff and make something fun out of it you don't have to go crazy and make it piece by piece but boy, if you've got the CEO of a large corporation coming on Tuesday to do a message to the troops, that CEO, their salary could be a hundred or a thousand times everything you're spending per minute to be on that set. And so wasting their time, uh, not having the proper equipment, not having things planned in advance such that the scripts are right and everybody's looked through it and legals checked it and, and everything else in the pre-production stage is done right, that leads you open to the kind of failure that means you will not get called for the next video and you can't build your business and succeed. Courtney, I see you wanting to say something there. Yeah, a couple of things. I did want to touch on audio, which I'll do in a second, but to finish out the teleprompter uh, comment, you know, a lot of times I'm called upon to provide a teleprompter for a celebrity just as a crutch uh, if they're nervous, uh, they or they have trouble remembering their lines. We won't even bring the teleprompter out. We'll leave in a case. We'll let them try and to do the spot or commercial or stand up uh, uh, without the teleprompter first. But if they're struggling and they can't remember the line, then we'll bring the teleprompter out. And the, usually the talent is very appreciative of that, although they're a little bit embarrassed that they have to rely on it. Uh, but I tell you, I have. <laughs> Every job I go out and I, a lot of times a talent come up to me and go, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Oh, I've been trying to memorize this three-page piece for the last week and I just can't. I'm, Oh, gosh, I can just read it off the teleprompter. That's great. So, uh, you know, it will save you a lot of time. Uh, you know, a lot of shoots that I used to go on for commercial shoots where they'd schedule a full-day shoot and they'd have, you know, a 30-second or one-minute commercial and they're – be three different versions. Uh, that's the other problem in, in commercial and advertising. You'll usually have the new and the non-new version, and the you know now in the blue, you know all the alternative versions for the commercial that you're shooting. Keeping them straight in the actor's mind is quite difficult. You know, are we doing the new or the non-new version? Are we doing the coming next week or opening tomorrow uh, version of the promo? So. Uh, keeping them all straight and satisfying all the lawyers out there is really important. So a lot of times you'll use the teleprompter for that to make sure that you comply with all the legal legal things that you have to do. I had to reshoot a commercial once because there was one second too little nutritional information in a serial commercial. Had to reshoot Ooh, the commercial. There was an actual time you have to give there were this actual, much yeah, time there were to actual nutrition? There were FTC requirements that if you stated it was nutritional, you had to have a certain amount of time in your commercial that spoke of the nutrition or something. Anyway, we had to reshoot the whole commercial. Yeah. Uh, well, as far as video production, I just wanted to mention sound. A lot of people ignore sound. They leave it to the last minute. They said, oh, we'll just get the sound. We'll plug, we'll stick the wireless mic on them and plug it into the camera and go. And they don't realize what wind can ruin your audio track. And if nobody's monitoring the sound while you're shooting, you can get back to the editing suite and find out that everything is... Oh, you know, that there's I've a, been there. Oh. A breeze blowing and there's not <sighs> adequate uh, wind protection on that microphone. It will ruin your whole production. So make sure you have someone in charge of monitoring the sound and be uh, knowledgeable of the fact that they should be looking at a meter. 
because a lot of times the cheap headphones that you may be using, like your AirPods or cheap little headphones, may not be able to reproduce the 20 hertz or 12 hertz or <laughs> lower frequency of that wind noise that's going into that microphone. So you'll be only be able to hear the, the higher frequencies and you won't hear the distortion and all the wind noise that's on there. So uh, that could be destroying your soundtrack. So make sure you Absolutely. monitor your sound, have a, have a good microphone and good wind protection on it if you're going outdoors. Uh, that's always important. And 32-bit is a savior for you these days. If you can record in 32-bit float, uh, you'll have less chance of somebody overmodulating and going into distortion than you will with uh, regular 16-bit or 24-bit recording. I concur with everything Courtney said, and I've run into the same problems myself. In fact, the reason the boxes around those three in the center, those are generally the field things that I'm really co uh, conscious of every time I go on location. And when I say camera, it's everything about camera, including teleprompting and things like that. That That is a mission-critical thing. It can be, as Courtney said, and I've run across this, that the lawyers have approved this language. It must be said exactly this way. Do not change any word in the order. There are other circumstances where I've worked with a lot of talent who it's not that they can't memorize, but they really feel they do their best work when they're speaking extemporaneously. But if they have one topic and six subtopics that they really feel they should cover within that, a particular kind of talent is out there that I've worked with a lot who says, just give me some bullet points so that I make sure I hit all these primary things, and then they can stand in front of the teleprompter, put it in their own words, make it come across really naturally and really colloquially, but they still use that crutch to make sure they cover every bullet point that they decided ahead of time would be the would serve the audience the best. So it's not that you have to do word-by-word -word teleprompting. You can do it. But everybody uses different things. The other thing that I've run across is that occasionally you're out in the field and somebody really wants to move around and they can't make eye contact with a the camera. They don't want to deliver like this. They have to talk about the equipment and go through them. This thing does this and so forth. And I've actually used on a couple of shoots ear prompters where I take a little micro recorder, put it in my pocket, run a little thing up into my ear. And then I can pre-record all the things I want to say in this particular section and it is a specific type of skill to be able to hear, copy, and perform it naturally without breaks, and, you know, what was the next word and things like that. But if you practice that, you can get used to it, and it becomes another crutch. I guess the point I'm making is that the circumstance depends on the tools you use. And that's what I find fascinating about the whole production of video. It's never the same day twice. Even if I'm making the same kind of video over and over again, let's say I'm working with a large corporation and the uh, vice president of sales wants to do a monthly message to the troops and it's going to be structured and it's got to talk about these five things, it's still going to be a different video every time. And it gives us the option of saying, well, let's do this one a little differently. We don't have to have you sitting at your desk. Let's go out in the field and do this one near what you're talking about. Or let's do this as a two-shot with somebody you're explaining to them how this piece of the system operates. Or if it's a financial, uh, let's say it's the CFO and he's talking about financial or she's talking about uh, how the next quarter is going to fall out. Um you have the chance to do graphics and intertwine them in real time so that 
that person so that they can absolutely point to the different aspects of what they're talking about and make contextual sense out of it. Sense out of it. Th- those are the kinds of things that you make a decision about when you're getting ready for production that always seem to me to enhance it. You're not trying to do the same exact job every time you go out in the field. You have creative control over making it a little bit different. And I think that adds to engagement with the audience. All right, we've got some questions here. Courtney, you want to uh, give us the first one, and unless anybody else on the panel has something they want to talk about, I did see some. Yeah. Jason was there somebody popped in there? I Jason, know. did you pop I, yeah. up right there at the tail end? I, I I have to reiterate what Bill said. Every every word of that is absolutely true, and like. There's a reason that most people that really get hooked on production are at least a little bit ADHD. Um, it, it's because, like, you know, if you are easily bored, you will not be bored on set. Like, that's just simply true. It's there's 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 no day. Yeah, no day is the same, and um, no day is easy. But almost every day is rewarding, which is bizarre. But I, I found it to be true. I 100% concur with that. You know, I, I think I do get easily bored if I'm doing the same thing over again. So that desire to, how can I do this a little bit better? How can I fix that problem? Or how can I, it, it, there's just so many things you have to address in the field when you're shooting video and you want to do a really good job for somebody. And sometimes you get to do the weirdest thing. I once was doing something for PetSmart, and we were talking about dog food. And so I got to go on location to a huge factory that had been built in the 19th century where a lot of that stuff gets made. And I was, back then I was shooting with a shoulder-mounted camera. (laughs) And they said, well, the next location is on the third floor. You want to take the man lift? And I went, the what? He said, the man lift. I said, what's that? He said, come here. And we walk over to this kind of cage-like thing. And inside of there, there was this thing that looked like a six-story belt sander. It was about maybe 24 inches wide. And every once in a while, a little shelf would come. And then about five feet above the shelf was a little cup and literally you stepped on the man lift on the thing and you held on to the top thing and it just took you slowly this is pre osha folks five stories i know every place you could fall off there was a little cage around it. it seemed like really but i thought what the heck and so i got to ride the man lift with my camera up to the fifth floor of the giant factory and that's the kind of, you know, you never get to experience stuff like that in regular life. And you're right. If anybody had, you know, we were all in hard hats and we all had incredible ear protection because in some of the areas where these formulas are mixed, it was so loud we couldn't hear ourselves think. That's an experience you don't generally get in life. But when you're making videos, that is quite possible. You get to go behind the scenes. You get to see the actual process that things are created with. You get to talk often to very intelligent people about their uh, things. I I shot once with one of the people who helped the team that decoded the human genome. And so just being able to sit with somebody like that and, and listen to the doctor explain the research that went into cracking part of that code was a fabulous afternoon. And I, boy, I, I I have to say that as careers go, this has been so satisfying in those kind of areas. I've just continued to kept, keep going places and learning things from people who know a lot about them. And that, to me, the reason I got out of radio, which was 
I'm sitting in a room by myself all day long talking out loud and moved into production was I got out in the field and I was able to learn, constantly learn new things. And that really enriched my life a tremendous amount. All right, I'm waxing along and let's get to the questions we have. Yeah, and don't let the fat guy get on the man lift. Get stuck between floors. It's in the man the lift? Yeah, that's not a good idea. From Rajan Shandil in Los Angeles, he says, What new tools would you use to mock up or rough edit a previs video before filming the actual video? There's all sorts of tools available. Uh, so for me, the number one tool I use is a digital camera, and your phone works perfectly for this. I can't tell you the number of times I went out on location and said, this is where we're going to need to do it. Let me take pictures, walk around, decide where the shots are going to be, uh, click and say, okay, the first shot is going to take place here. This is the reception area, and here's what it looks like. And I probably go take two or three shots. I might take a shot of the ceiling just to check the lighting. Um, I might also uh, put my phone in record mode and do a little bit of a soundscape just to say, what does this sound like? Is there any problem here? Are they too near the copy machine, and can you hear that? I would try to you know, walk through as much as possible. So that's my first thing. And then some sort of layout program that allows you to to do a mock-up storyboard so that you can put that shot that I took out in the field and do some description with it. This should be a medium shot. It's going to have two people in it. There are even tools now, plenty of tools that allow you to mock up storyboards with putting little figures in there and determining how big they are and whether it's a you know shot at a table or whether they're seated or standing or in motion or whatever. Those kind of things exist out there. They're really helpful. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, the uh, the uh, pre scout is uh, is a great tool to have and get all the department heads if you can if it's in your budget together to. Go to the location, look at the location, and see what the problems are for, you know, the electric might want to know where to put the generator. Can we tie into the uh, AC here? Well, we need to bring in power. Uh, the grips need to know, you know, how are we going to get our 600-pound dolly up to the second floor when there's no elevator? Things like that you need to know other than just coming back with pictures of, oh, here's a great uh, loft where we can shoot and it's got a great view out the window. You, know, you don't realize with how much it's going to take to get that production gear up and down those four flights of stairs uh, because there's no way to get it up there other than the stairs. So you got to take the location situation into hand. And um, uh, storyboarding is the other thing that uh, if you're building sets or working on a stage or working on a, a dramatic film of some sort where there's a lot of uh, production designers going to be involved and they may want to generate some sketches of the sets and how they're going to be, be built and then the director can take those sketches and figure out where the camera's going to be and you can save a lot of money by just determining, well, we're never going to look around the fourth wall so we don't need to build that. And you'd be surprised the number of sets I've gone on in Hollywood where they've built a four-walled set and we never see more than two of the four walls. And think of all the expense they went to to you know build those walls, put props on them, pictures on them, rent uh, furniture that we never see because it's behind us the entire time because we're only in that set for two shots. And uh, the director only wanted to see this person and this person, and then we're out of that scene into another scene. So... Um, it can save you a lot of money. Storyboarding can save you a lot of money because it knows everybody knows then what the director's looking for and what he wants in the shot and what you don't need to bring necessarily to achieve what the director wants. There's, there's software out there. I found one uh, called uh, Bluescape 
that is a storyboarding and uh, it'll let you manage storyboards and do collaboration so that different people can see your storyboards and sign off on uh, what they need or just by looking at the director's boards, let's say. They'll know that, oh, look, we need to build, uh, you know, this for this long shot of this train coming in, we need to put the camera on the tracks. We have to accommodate that somehow. So uh, the grip department may have a comment on that. And, and, and each shot can bring its own challenges. So having a competently drawn storyboard by a storyboard artist or using software, the 3D software can do as uh, as bill said generate uh, you know stock uh, 3d uh, people that you can populate in there and a lot of people are now using uh, midjourney or or the ai generated uh, uh, tools to generate you know a picture that you would normally use like a stock photo of uh, you know give me we want to show uh, two people in business suits having a conversation over the copier and you know midjourney can generate that and you can use that as a reference and then crop it and bring it into Photoshop and size it the way you want to to give it uh, to give people an idea of what you're looking for in the final product. Yeah, that's a really good use for that kind of thing. Although I will say, and I'm, I'm going back to a particular scout location scout that I did. I was at uh, one of my larger clients had a brand new office building and it was really beautiful. And so we got to the point and they say, you know, where are we going to shoot this next scene? And they said, we've got this conference room. And I went, okay, conference rooms are usually pretty pretty terrible. Uh, they said, no, come back to this one. And sure enough, this conference room had a glass wall looking out over an absolutely beautiful little glade kind of stream thing. And I went, wow, this would be beautiful. But then I immediately thought, okay, so I'm in a room shooting toward the outside. That means I'm going to need significant light. So I had to go immediately back to my equipment thing and say, the the normal lights that I'm bringing probably are bringing are probably not going to be able to do the exposure for the talent plus shoot that outdoors. So I upped it to something that I think was light panels Gemini or something that had a lot of output. And then the day of the shoot, that shot came out spectacularly, and it's that kind of thinking ahead. I, I I'm a big proponent of the idea of. Let's get something that everybody can talk about and decide if this is the kind of look we want. But I'm also I'm trying not to avoid this idea of go to where I'm actually going to shoot and see what the real world looks like there. If I'm going to have to shoot it there, I want to know what's the light like at this time of day. What is the what is the background going to resolve like? Is it too confusing? Or you know, is that is that too busy? And is that going to distract from the person that I'm shooting? So there's just it, it's an interesting learning process to analyze what's going to get you the shot that you need in this series of shots. But in order to know what that series of shots are, you do uh, the storyboard is a huge help. If I do this, I can tell the story accurately. And I will also say. Anytime you do something like that, you have to make the decision, am I going to stick to the storyboard just as it's done, even if it's approved? Or am I going to give myself permission if I see something that might be better or might enhance that? Will I take the time and the chance to shoot it differently as well and leave the storyboard behind in the service of the creativity of actually making a better piece than would have been if I just stuck to the storyboard? That's the you know that that's when you take off your production technologist hat and you have to put on your creative hat and say can i improve this in real life as i'm doing it let's go to the next question 
Coming in from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, he says, What about all the gear that supports camera movement, like Steadicams, tracks, jibs, and gimbals? Yeah, very valuable. Um, and I think increasingly valuable as people expect the new era. You know, we used to do a lot of lockdown shots in the early parts of my career because you just didn't want the camera move to mess things up. Boy, did that change, particularly kind of in the NTV era. We, we laugh about shaky cam and things like that, but the audience got used to the energetic nature, nature of moving cameras. And there's not a shoot that I go on today, particularly with one particular producer I work with, Good Labot, a bit, where they're constantly saying, I just want to drift around this a little bit. Just give me some movement in the camera, not too much, but let's just drift through this shot. And when I'm shooting my own stuff, I hit the same thing. What's the... What's the flavor of the images that I'm giving to people? Because steady lock shot, steady lock shot, steady lock shot does one thing, and it can work. I'm, I'm not denigrating this because if you got the, the building and the signage, maybe just that monument size needs to stand on its own, and you don't want to be drifting all over the place and making it harder to lock your eyes to it. But if you can put some life into the shots through camera motion, Boy, that can give you a more energetic and more interesting visual program. Jason, oh, I'm sorry, Courtney, we're going to start with Courtney. Yeah, and gimbals have gotten a lot cheaper than they used to be. A steady cam used to be very expensive, but you can now get an equivalent for, you know, uh, under $1,000 that can handle a medium-sized camera, you know, or at least a DSLR uh, that can give you a, a, a decent shot that you can even, uh, that you can handhold to support it, or you can stick it onto a little uh, arm on a C-stand, for example, just to get you a little rise or, or lower in the shot. It can add a lot of, of production value. Uh, one thing to consider um, is that I get, I'll show up on a shoot and they say, oh, well, we want to put the camera on a slider. And I say, you know we have a 20-pound teleprompter we're going to mount on the camera. You know? And they, <laughs> they have a little camera and a little slider that's designed for a two-pound camera. So you got to make sure you communicate that information in advance and don't just show up and the director has an idea. Well, I just want a little bit of movement as we go, you know, but it's all, you know, it's five pages of script on teleprompter that they're going to be reading. So you have to make sure the camera department, the grip department knows that a teleprompter is going to be working if you have a teleprompter on uh, on the schedule. Uh, so you make uh, make sure you have communication between all the departments because they're all interdependent. And if you don't... Uh, cover that usually in a tech scout, uh, just make sure you, you publish a, uh, a contact list of all the crew members that are going to be out there so that the, you know, teleprompter operator can talk to the camera assistant and let him know, you know, how heavy a head they're going to need and how it's going to mount to the camera and how the camera, is the camera going to be moving or is it going to be static? Can the teleprompter be on its own stand and just roll up in front of the lens? Uh, what about the filters in front of the lens? How are they held on? Is it a big matte box that won't fit inside the teleprompter? Or is it a big, uh, you know, all these things need to be worked out in advance. And if you try and uh, deal with them once you show up on set, it can be a disaster. You're going to limit what you can get because you don't have the right little gadget uh, or widget to accomplish uh, what you need. And had you only known in advance they were planning on sliding the camera back and forth, uh, you'd be uh, set up and ready to do it. Jason? 
um, listening to Courtney talk, my immediate thought was like, I, I don't think I've ever been involved with anything that is more interdependent, truly that failure of one means failure, failure on everybody. Um, and so you, you get used to, um, just like uh, in the past, we've talked about creativity as a muscle. Um, along the same lines, communication has to be, it doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter if you're tired, doesn't matter. Um, you, you end up like learning how to speak differently, to speak verbosely about stuff like this so that it doesn't end up getting in your way. And uh, along those lines, um, I might as well just share another whoopsie that I had towards the beginning, but like, I, I'm not the only one who, you know, you, you get a bunch of money and you're really excited about a project and you get a new piece of gear and you haven't had a chance to get really good with that gear yet. Resist every possible urge to take that out on set and crack it out of the plastic that day or even that week. It is, uh, it's, it's a kind of a recipe for disaster. Amen to that. And that's one of the reasons uh, pro bono work, things you just do or going out just for yourself, you get a new piece of gear and you say, you know, okay, can this do a job for me? And what kind of job for, for me can it do? And as you learn it, you find, oh, wait a second, it could do that. And I could do one good example. I've been shooting recently for some of my less expensive things on this rig. Uh, this is basically an iPhone case with a little light on the side of it. And it's on a monopod that can go up to about five or six feet tall. And so the the thing that I hadn't done with my larger cameras before, if I was shooting on location and we were just out at a at an art walk a couple of days ago for one of my clients, they're one of the big sponsors of the art walk. And what I've discovered is that while I'm live shooting, if I see something that's low to the ground, like we there were a lot of pets at this one, just flipping it upside down and going way down low, and suddenly I have a much more interesting point of view of a couple of cute dogs who are meeting each other for the first time from below their nose level. And I can execute that shot now just on the spur of the moment. Yes, I have to flip it around when it comes out. But with a larger camera on any kind of an other mount, I wouldn't have that option. Similarly, if I think I'm kind of blocked by the crowd here, I can take that six foot pole, go way up with it and get a shot down from that. So the piece of gear sometimes determines what you can shoot. The first two times I went out, I didn't execute either of those shots. But boy, the first time I thought, you know, I can just flip this around and get down to a, literally a gopher's eye view. When is that going to be useful? I've gotten five or six shots out of this thing that I never would have gotten any other way. And I'm always now looking for that shot. What's, you know, before it was too much of a hassle to go down two inches above the ground. Now it's just a spur of the moment decision and that changes the shooting style. So every piece of equipment determines what you're able to do and what you think about doing in my, my book. Let's go to the next question. Next question comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. He says, what do you, uh, what do you include in a script breakdown for a video shoot? Crew, cast, horses, cars, lighting, makeup. How detailed do you get? Courtney, start us off. Well, the more detailed, the better. And usually a lot of productions, even commercial productions I've worked on, will have a pre-pro meeting where all the department heads will attend. And you'll read through the script, and the producer or director will point out things that you're going each department's going to need or... Or each department head will read the script and say, hey, you know, this says rain. I've got to be able to record sound in the rain, so I've got to have rain coverage for my microphones, et cetera, et cetera, and how are we going to deal with that? 
Uh, so that's the time to broach all the problems that each individual department is going to have in a pre-pro meeting. So that's uh, why it's important to get the script out. And I, I, one pet peeve of mine is these days is everyone so, because of social media, everyone is so secretive that they don't want anything to leak out in advance of the shoot. You know, so they won't, the, the script is highly secret and we can't let anyone see it before we show up on set. Well, then all the department heads are working in the dark. You know, if uh, they didn't know that, hey, this scene has four live animals in it, or, you know, there's uh, there's rain called for, or there's explosions on the set, you got to know those things in advance. Uh, otherwise, you know, to prepare, you know, you have to, if you're shooting with guns, you have to have hearing protection for the entire crew. If you're shooting with smoke on the set, you have to have respirators available for the crew. Uh all these little details uh, need to be worked out in advance, and if you keep the script a secret or you don't write it until the night before, the teleprompter operator will drive you nuts. <laughs> Spoken from experience, because I'm always trying to get the final script out of someone, and they're always, oh, oh, we'll we'll have it uh, the day before. We'll, we'll get it to you know midnight the night before the shoot. Still no script. Then they uh, come in in the morning. Oh, we have the script. It's here on the. It's it's in an Excel. It's in an Excel uh, spreadsheet. Is that okay? Uh, and it's forty eight pages. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll work great with real yeah. time with real Can text. We yeah, put perfect. that onto the teleprompter. Yeah, give me about an hour to clean that up, and we'll be ready to go. So you know, the the more you can communicate in advance, the better. And the more the department information the department's heads have about how you plan on accomplishing your shoot the better. If uh, the director says, oh, I want to get this shot from high up in the air, you know, the grip department has to know to have scaffolding on the truck to get the camera 30 feet up high in the air, or you've got to order a crane or something. So uh, and, and communication you're advance oh, is the key. Ahead, Sorry. <laughs> well, you're listening to Courtney, who's worked in, in Hollywood in the big biggest budget shoot sometimes. And boy, if you've ever seen a breakdown spreadsheet or, or one of the the it can be hundreds of pages. I mean, literally hundreds of pages of detail at this level. For scene 105-7, we need these 60 people, and they need to be outfitted like this, and props, and costuming, and everything is indicated because all of those things affect the budget and, and how it works. Now, on the other end of that, I did once have a corporate client. I loved her. She was fabulous. And at some point, she would go, why meet when we can shoot? <laughs> and in the right circumstances, not always, but in the right circumstances, if you have something you just know you need a thing to fill a spot in a show and you can you you know the shape of it, I don't want to give up the spontaneity of saying, let me go see if I can make something that looks beautiful in this general category that'll work in this program. Um you know, I I don't dislike the meetings. I know a lot of people do, but I it, they comfort me to know that everybody's on the same page and going in the same direction, and that I won't annoy anyone on my set by wasting time when I have the CEO, the CFO, and the president of the company's salaries burning away as they're all sitting there waiting for me to get my job done. Um, that is very important to me. But I, I keep pushing back to this. I want that little bit of time between the shots that are scheduled that the crew is setting up to just wander. And is there something I can get? Is there something I can see that I didn't know was going to be there this day, but it's here this day. And if I shoot this 
then that's going to make my program better. It, it's a tough balance between the structure and the freedom of creativity. But I think it's worth fighting for both sides of that. I just want to continue to make that point because I don't want it to seem like every video has to be a burden on you. It really, You should find ways to put joy in your work if you possibly can. And those are the things to me that make this job fun. And boy, the more fun I have, the more anxious I'm going to be to go out and do it the next time. And I'm going to bring that spirit to the shoot. I'm probably going to have a more lively and more interesting video to watch because I do bring that spirit to it. Courtney, you had another thought? Yeah, as far as script breakdown and, and communications on set goes, uh, another tool to have, if you're on a multi-day shoot or a series or something where you're shooting scripted material over a period of six days for, a, let's say, a television episode, the call sheet is very important. Because on the call sheet, it'll 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 break down, you know, what actors are required, how many extras are required. It'll have breakdowns for the prop department. You know, we need this prop, this prop, and this prop, and we have a special effects of blood spurting, you know, or we have guns that are going to be shooting. We have well, special effects department. It'll have all the requirements for all the individuals that are out of the norm, beyond what normally you know the each crew member shows up with uh, on the set. So anything unusual will be listed on that call sheet. And that's why it's important to have your call sheet ready in advance. And in most television shows, uh, you will get an uh, an advance call sheet about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, even though you're shooting till 8 o'clock at night. So you can see what scenes they're deciding to shoot the next day. And that stuff can move around because depending upon what you got shot today determines what you're going to shoot tomorrow. So if you don't get to all the scenes today, they're going to move to tomorrow, and you've got to know that in advance so that you'll be ready to, to handle that stuff the next day. So uh, an advanced call sheet, having a production department that is on the ball and looking at the scheduling and looking at what scenes and are going to be shot the next day and who's required and who has to get a call because uh, people shoot long days, and uh, you know at the last minute there can be changes to that call sheet. So when you get that call sheet out in advance, you don't want a surprise in the morning when you get up at 6 a.m. to report to the set and you realize they're doing three scenes that you thought they were going to shoot next week, tomorrow. So you have to be prepared to handle that stuff. So the call sheet uh, is really important uh, to let you know what's going on and to keep all the departments informed of what they need. Even on smaller work, I will say, if I, I, I break down a corporate video and if I know I have 16 shots on my shot seat for the next day, I can't waste any time. I really have to just dig in and do it. Particularly, the next thing I do is say, how many locations? You know, 16 uh, shots over three locations is a different day shooting than 16 shots over seven locations because you execute one set, you have to break down, move, relight, set up, and then shoot the next two and then you have to break down move and then lunch gets in the way and so you you learn the rhythm of how you can best get your work accomplished and you work that into how many setups you can possibly do and if i'm seeing 16 i'm going eh, i'm not gonna have any time to do much of anything and just execute this if you can cut it down to 10 suddenly you have breathing room to be able to do stuff but that might add a day to the production cycle so that's going to affect budgets in a huge way and also location availability and a ton of things what you're seeing is the inter connectedness of the process of producing work and it is in video production it is very interconnected one not mistake but one um, not taking into consideration this 
in the 15th shot of the day when you were planning on the 16th shot of the day being the sunset shot and you're losing light can mean, oh, God, I can't do that until tomorrow now. And you have to get everybody back on location to do the thing that you're going to do on Tuesday, on Wednesday. And everybody in the back end of the production has to scramble to make that work. Let's go on to the next question. Next question comes from uh, Rajan Shandil in Los Angeles. He says, as a user of the Avid and Apple ecosystems, can Blackmagic do the complete video edit, sound, and compression? Jason. The answer is ostensibly yes, it can. It is not as adopted as Avid of specifically for full-length Hollywood feature films. Um, and there are lots of reasons why. I'm convinced that none of them are good, but like, you know, at the end of the day, um, creativity ends up needing or functioning best, I think, um, with certain known constraints. And Avid just happens to be one of them. Um, for better or for worse, that's just how it is. Um, let's see. The real benefit, I think, is that because they pretty much own the last pass, which is the color grading, um, they're hoping to work backwards. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Courtney? Uh, it depends on the level of your production. I mean, if you're producing something that you're just going to put up on your YouTube channel, yeah, uh, yeah, that Blackmagic can do the complete video edit, sound, and compression because it has an output render designed for YouTube, et cetera, or Vimeo or you know, Facebook, whatever type of uh, distribution media you're going to be using. If it's more professional, if you're looking at a theatrical feature that you want to actually show in some theater somewhere or on a network somewhere, uh, you have to adhere to the network or the theater's uh, requirements. And a lot of times those are divergent and complicated. So most people will you know, finish their edit, they'll have their assets available, and they will hand it off to a separate company that prepares the DCP or the digital cinema package because of all the flavors that are required. You know, we, do we want it in 5.1 sound? Do we want it in 7.1? Do we want it in Atmos? Is it going to be, you know, what theaters is it going to play in? You know, what aspect ratio is it going to be? You know, there are a million things to put into that digital cinema package, and there are companies that are professionals at creating those. And so even the big networks and stuff, a lot of times will hand off their final finish, even if they're editing an Avid, to a, a company that will prepare the final assets for uh, distribution uh, just to make sure. Because there can be 20 different versions of that that you have to prepare for distribution on all the various streaming media sites and television, broadcast television, theatrical display, etc. So make sure you put that in the budget if you know you're going to go to multiple outputs. And Raj, no, I am... I am a bad person to ask about this because I fell in love with an edit system because it made my life easier. So all all of what has been said, true. I, I truly believe that any of the major editing packages can do any of the kinds of work you need to do. And there are fabulous, fabulous editors and video content creators working in all of these systems. Just for me personally, the 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 magnetic timeline and the things that Randy Ubilos and the team at Apple built into Final Cut takes away so much drudgery from video creation for me that if I have to go back onto track-based editing, I feel like I am constrained and I can't think the way I want to think. Not every editor feels this way. I do passionately. I can't tell you the number of times 
when I just say to myself, this is so much easier. I can execute ideas so much easier now. And it has to do with magnetism. It has to do with the keyword search stuff. Um, recutting something from a longer project into a shorter project. I laugh at myself at how easy it is. I mean, I literally take three-minute pieces and cut them into a 60-second one. And I can do a decent job of that in like three minutes because everything is magnetically connected to everything else. Now, that may not be the way that you work. You may work in a system that it's more important to be compatible with all the other stakeholders of the project. And if they're not working magnetically, then you being the outlier is not going to help you. But for me, as somebody who gets to sit down, had the privilege of being able to sit down and determine the shape and the flow and the timing and the nature of the video I'm making, I this is the only editing system for me that has ever made me feel this free to do what I want to do quickly. I'm an exception. Uh, you know, well, there are, there are a lot of us. There's millions of Final Cut editors, but it's the thing that really makes me feel like I'm not struggling to make my videos. I'm enjoying doing that. But maybe I'm just weird like that. Let's go on to the next question. This one comes in from uh, Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. It says, what might you add to this list of six things to consider when scouting locations? Aesthetic, distance or studio to set, permissions, cost, logistics, and environment. This is a list from a master class for film. Oh, so many things. Jason? Well, far be it for me to add anything to a masterclass for film, but um, my immediate thought would be um, flexibility, forgivability. Um, if you need to do a reshoot, you know, is this is this a place that is only um, available like, um, you know, White Sands Missile Range about you know, three hours from from me. Um, you know, there are some times when you can shoot in White Sands, New Mexico. There are not many of them, and it doesn't matter who you are. Steven Spielberg couldn't do it. It doesn't matter. Um, so, you know, the only thing that I would add to that, which I guess you could put under permissions, would be flexibility. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, there's a lot of considerations. Uh, I've worked on many commercial shoots, for example, where the art director will get some pictures of a house. Oh, this postmodern 50s uh, architecture is perfect. This is exactly what we're looking for. And the house is sitting up on a hill on, on the Hollywood Hills with one single single lane road that leads up to it. Uh, there's no parking anywhere near it. And so you have to take all of those things into account. Accessibility is a lot of the times it's overlooked. When you realize you have to get a 60-person crew into that little house sitting on the side of a hill up in the Hollywood Hills, to shoot that uh, little bedroom that was designed in the 50s, it turns out that you know it had been a lot cheaper to just build it, rent a stage, and build those three, build a set on a stage. Because if you're not seeing out the window, there's no reason to to transport a crew of 60 up into a remote location and have to deal with shuttling people in and out. A lot of times, the neighborhoods especially in Hollywood, uh, are, are sensitive to this. And a lot of neighborhoods prevent trucks. You know, they'll limit uh, street parking. You can't park any production trucks on the street. So they have to, you have to rent a location like two miles away and you have to have hire Teamsters with vans to shuttle people back and forth to the parking location or the base camp. Uh, and you have to leave a lot of your tools, you know, three miles away. And if you suddenly need something on that remote set location, you got to get in a van and go retrieve it or have somebody that goes and does that for you. 
And these things can bite you and create, turn a one-day shoot into a four-day shoot if you don't uh, uh, do the advance work and look at all the, the features, the permission. Can we shoot four days in a row? Can we? Uh, uh, it's possible to get the, get the people to the set and have their tools close enough to the set to be able to use without having to shuttle stuff back and forth. This is very important in the logistics of shooting, and a lot of the times people just overlook it because they're used to going in with their little camcorder and going, hey, this is great, I can walk in and shoot this, not realizing if you're going to shoot it professionally, you need, may need you know, 60 people and support equipment, dollies, cranes, and so on. Generator, where can we park the generator, et cetera. These have all been really, really good answers. The other thing that, that that's a wild card for me, but I do pay attention to now I'm at this point in my career, and that is personalities of everyone who owns the property. What 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 do they like to deal with? Am I going to have to fight every step of the way to get what I want done, or can I bring them into the fold and make them kind of a collaborator such that when I turn around and I see them walking toward me, instead of going, oh, God, here's another problem, it's... This will be fun. What's what's happening? <laughs> you know, and this is the balance. To me, the emotional temperature of a set is almost as important as the look of the set. That doesn't mean it always has to be perfectly smooth. You are going to run into problems and you are going to run into a thing that's just not working. And the stress is going to rise on sets. This is the nature of the work that we do. If I'm surrounded with people that I trust, if I have assessed that this person that I'm having to deal with because they are the property management there is not entirely toxic, um, then I think I can probably get by this day. But I've had circumstances where, oh, God, they've got another thing. Oh, another thing. And, they, oh, we, we needed to be over there, and they didn't want us to move that thing. And, all right, let me see if I can get another shot. I've, I've run into those kind of things. So I'm just always assessing the personalities of everybody around me. Alex talks about this a good little bit. I'm, I'm a little less, I, you know, it must be my way. But I do note who are my allies and who might be working against me. And I pay attention to bringing the allies closer and limiting the effect on my shoot of the personalities that might be prickly. Let's just put it that way. Next question. Uh, from uh, Rajan Shandil in Los Angeles says, digital replacement for 3x5 cards on a wall when building out your story structure for video. You know, famously, um, oh, who is it? The, the sound guy. Um, gosh, I'm going to forget his name. Puts does all of his pre-production on three by five cards on his wall next to his desk, and he's been doing that for decades. There are there are automated ways, but you know something? I am a great proponent of finding out what works for you, and then doing what works for you, and not trying to fit into what somebody else tells you you should do. And I'm going to go right to the next one because we have almost no time, and our next question is, I think, our last one. So let's next question. Oh. Kidoki coming in next from Douglas Carmichael is how do you plan and and integrate drone shots into a script? Like anything else, you find your drone operator, you work with him, you tell him what to him or her or them, you tell them how you want to make this shot come off. Jason, real quick, and Courtney, real quick. 
Yeah, there there is a there is a quick set of lists. You know, drone shots are traditionally used as great establishing shots and great transition shots. Um, you know, voiceover that kind of expository um, ethereal shot because um, it's a different perspective and it's one that we are still not used to seeing as an audience, as you know, ants on a picnic table. Um, and um, pretty much the same as anything else, um, you know, as any other special effects shot, um, it's a little bit less safety concerning than, you know, than a, a scorpion, but it's also, um, it can be a little bit hairy. So, yeah, it just Courtney, depends. I can only give you about 10 seconds to get out on time. Yeah. Uh, give the script and the location uh, details to your drone operator, and he can clear everything with the FAA and make sure that it's not in a no-fly space and get the required permits, et cetera. And we'll know uh, what's necessary to accomplish the shot. There you go. Tomorrow, Epifan Connect on, uh, don't forget, Isidore Lab. And then what's the last thing? Oh, Alex is doing his thing. This is the Saturday that Alex is doing the volunteer convocation. Thank you to producers. Thank you to the panelists. The, 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 all of you who asked questions, they were incredible. The panelists, thank you so much for being here. I could not have survived this without you. It's fabulous. And, of course, all the back-end crew doing amazing things. Go ahead and roll the credits. I've let things run a little too long. Thank you all for watching. We'll see you all tomorrow. That was totally my fault. That's okay. I'm, so I'm, I'm trying seconds. to learn. I know it was mine. I should have cut off two questions earlier for that to try to get the time. And I still don't know how much time the credit roll takes. I'm trying to get there. But Till you guys are all fabulous. I do like those those TV shows and just roll them at 100 miles an hour. You know. Until <laughs> yeah. we get boring. Yeah, those credits. Like, the, the blacklist is like, thanks for nothing, guys. Boop, 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 boop. So 60 right then. So we're probably on the last page. Yes, we were on the last page. Yay. I was close. Good Thank you, guys. Really. for scale. <laughs> Everybody. I didn't get to read Ben Hassan. You're right. Okay. So partial failure today, but that's all right. We're getting better. Thank you all. See you.